Unrequited love songs are the best. I mean, they're the most powerful, the most memorable. I mean, it, it taps into our teenage angst. And so it's what just, we just remember these songs, right? And these are songs about love that is not returned, a love that is forbidden, or a love that doesn't belong to us. I mean, that just ex- describes your whole teenage experience, doesn't it? Right. So I actually want to know, what are some of your favorite unrequited love songs? If you're on Facebook, go ahead and post them on the comments. I want to know. Go. What are some of your favorite unrequited love songs? I have a list of them here, so I'll start naming some of mine. If you leave me now by Chicago. Oh, nice, Jody. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A little James Taylor. Okay, how sweet. Anyone else got an unrequited love song? I got, I got one here. Uh, this is a newer one. You Belong With Me by Taylor Swift. That's like, that is like a classic one, right? You Belong With Me, right? Uh, pretty much all early Taylor Swift is unrequited love songs. Uh, what else? What else do you have? Nothing else. You guys are just not, no love in your life at all. How about, how about Bad Religion by Frank Ocean? Anyone know that one? Okay. Bonnie Raitt, I Can't Make, I can't make You Love Me? That is a great unrequited love song, right? Any Adele song, right? Just throw that out there, right? Those are great ones. Come on, I want to hear some more. Shout them out. Man, I'm, you just, this is making me sad here. All right, uh, Losing My Religion by R.E.M. You can just tar- begin to understand where I, my music tastes, right? That is an unrequited love song. Uh, sad But True, Metallica. Anyone? Uh, go listen to it. It's an unrequited love song. Uh, um, Creep by Radiohead. <laughs> unrequited, forbidden love. love right? uh, it might have explicit lyrics, so be careful if you play that around kids. Yeah. All of me. The jazz standard, okay. All right, jazz standard. Just where you are? Just the way you are? Okay, all right. Billy Joe, all right. That Billy Joe's a good one, all right. How about Jesse's Girl, Rick Springfield? That is a good one, right? Black by Pearl Jam. You're like, what? Hmm? All right, all right. Every little thing she does is magic, the police. Now we're getting to really good music, right? And then the one that I actually thought about the most as I was preparing this sermon is Kiss the Bride by Elton John. Not a big fan of that song? You'll be a big fan of this song afterwards, right? Kiss the Bride by Elton John. Just Imagination Temptations. Thank you, Robert. I knew there was some unrequited love in you. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. Uh, Unrequited love. Or perhaps more uh, accurately, uh, unrequited infatuation. Or, I mean, that's even a nicer way of saying it. Like, lust. That's what it is. Right? Uh, It sets off uh, chemicals in our mind. Right? This is is why all that angst in us as teenagers, right? Chemicals in our mind that consumes our our energy, our imagination, our thoughts. I mean, it gives a sense of a, a rush of adrenaline. Right, this unrequited love is something that you want, but you can't or don't have. And it's, you, you long for it and, it, and it hurts. Part of that is a chemical reaction, right? Unrequited love is really infatuation. It's really lust. It's really 
envy. If, if C.S. Lewis says that C.S. Lewis said pride, pride would be a ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration of self. And so we've learned as a couple years ago through my sermon series that, that envy then would be the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration of self-hatred. Envy is actually hatred, or, and more particularly hatred of self, because you don't have something. You're not complete. And so if we talk about, we've done this recent biblical definition of jealousy and envy to kind of distinguish those things, even though we kind of use these words interchangeably in our culture and our language, that jealousy is kind of a biblical concept. God is jealous. He calls himself, I am, call me jealous, right? And so jealousy, if we use Jerry Bridges' uh, definition in his book, it's an intolerance of rivalry. Intolerance of rivalry. So right jealousy or good jealousy, if we were to sign it, was if you were, uh, someone were trying to win your affection of your spouse, right? You would not be happy about that, and so you would do something to protect your marriage and to keep what belongs to you, even though that's not a great way to talk about your spouse belonging, but something that is yours, something that is your love. So you desire, jealousy in the right way, you desire something, something good or it could be bad. It's the condition, jealousy is the condition of loving something and, and having that possession, having it, and then feeling threatened because that love is being taken away or, be, or being threatened to be taken away. So the jealous are people that have something. The envious are people that do not have something and want it. That's really the biggest difference. Jealous people have something, they're trying to keep it. The envious don't have something and they're trying to acquire it. So envy, more particularly, would be resentful of an advantage someone else has and then be willing to do anything to make sure someone else can't have it. So I want something that you have, and I'm willing to do anything so that you even can't have it because I don't like it, that you have it, and I don't have it. And I'm not okay that I have it and you have it. That's not okay. I want it, and I don't want you to have it. You see, that's a really despicable aspect of envy, the real hatred of, of it. So envy was be you desire something that doesn't belong to you, that you don't require, simply have. Envy is similarly, uh, similar to covenantness because it wants something that belongs to another. Envy comes from a place of have not, comes from a place of emptiness. Greed, it's similar to envy, but different. What I want, I want to have something, and, but it's okay if you have it too. For envy, would be like, I, you cannot have that thing. I need to have it. And more particularly, coveting more focuses on outward possessions. Envy is more, even more insidious because it goes after interior qualities. So I envy someone of who you are, your identity. I envy some people because of their worth or because of their honor, because of their standing, because of their, their love. So envy, in a sense that unrequited love, is actually not about the love. It's about the idea of being loved or having that love, or having that possession, or being in that relationship, but having that identity. And you see, it's not love at all. Envy does not come from love at all. It comes from hatred. So that would be like a difference of this. Kind of push it away from uh, relationship aspects. So 
envy would be the difference of you, you, you want a car because of the beauty of the car. I'm not a car person, so this doesn't really relate to me. Uh, there's lots of things. But so you, you want that car because it's a beautiful car versus envy would say, I want that car because of the way that status, the way it makes me feel. I feel better or I have a certain status or people look at me in a certain way. So if you envy, you're chasing after inferior pleasures versus the real true pleasure that God is and that God has to provide for you. Envy really is the hatred of someone else's borrowed glory. And what I mean by borrowed glory is that we know that God is the giver of all good things, and that all of us being in the image of God, God gives us all these things. He gives us his image. We all have an incredible dignity because we are from God and by God and God sustains us. And that all the things that he gives us, gives us each different gifts, different qualities, different characteristics. right? And so those are all God's glory. It's a, it's a reflection of God's glory that he gives to each and every one of us. And so when we envy someone else's what they have, or their interior qualities, or their identity, or their possession, we actually envy what God has given them. And we do not value what God has given us. That's why it's a, it's a hatred of self. And really just a hatred of all things. We envy the things that we love unrequited, and the things that we can't have. Right? We have this saying in our culture, the heart wants, the heart wants what the heart wants. So we just got to have it, right? I can't control it. But that's, that's the fundamental problem of the, what the gospel teaches us, is that your heart is broken. You, what you desire is completely wrong. The, your little desire, your little ability to choose things or to want things is, is broken. It wants the wrong things. And so that really describes a lot of our life experiences is that you and I continually go after the wrong thing and the right thing is God and he's trying to reorient it. He's trying to give us a new heart because our heart is dead and goes after dead things and he wants us to have a heart that's alive that goes after the living thing, which is God. And that's, that's essentially a way to describe the gospel. And we don't just want things, right? I mean, we want things, we want money, but we want we want people, we want prestige, we want possessions, and we want power. And we don't want anyone else to have them as well. I know, I mean, you're not like that. But I am. I mean, I am like that. So what does unrequited love have anything to do with this passage this morning? I mean, I'm just going on, but what does it have to do? Let's look. In John 3, 22. Turn to me if you have a Bible, otherwise just follow along. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, the Baptist, was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not been put in prison. Now, that, that's actually an interesting time frame for us. So I just want you to understand what, it, what the time frame of all this happened. The time frame of everything that's happened in John until right now, this is a little key marker. 
So if, if you know that, right, John was put into prison. If you listen to all the other synoptic gospels, everything that's happened right now, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Everything that's happened in John has happened before those gospels, except for the birth of Christ, right? All the other public ministry of Jesus that they've started, right? This would be all before that. And we know this because of this little indicator. John had not been put into prison yet. And so if you read Mark 1.14, Mark 1.14, it says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. So now all these things that we've already talked about in John are before this and then after this. So you can just put it in the time frame. It's very helpful to understand his interaction in the temple, his interaction with Nicodemus, all before those things happened in the rest of the Gospels. And so here we have, so John, the Baptist, had previously been baptizing, and he baptized Jesus, right? We, we know this. This was earlier we read in the Gospel. And then John has previously identified Jesus to everyone that this is the Lamb of God when he saw them. This guy is the Lamb of God, which was a new term, that was kind of a different kind of term. He said, and he also, he saw the Spirit. He saw the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, descend on him and remain there. Not just come and go, but overflowing. Just kind of this abundant presence of his Spirit. And then there was this kind of transition in their ministry, right? John baptized Jesus. And it was this, this public proclamation of John's responsibility and his role and that Jesus' responsibility. It's like, okay, this is the transition. Now we're moving on, right? And it's all about Jesus. But then here comes John back again. And so we have then in verse 25, now a discussion arose with some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So this is actually, it's really fascinating. So you thought, okay, John's done. It's all about Jesus. But yet in this middle of this transition, there's John who's still doing his ministry, proclaiming and preaching the good news, right? He's preaching repentance, people to repent, and he's transitioning to Jesus. But then Jesus is in a different location with his disciples, and he's baptizing as well, and he's proclaiming. What is he proclaiming? The kingdom of God is now. Repent, which is the same message that John was preaching. So you think, why, why are these two ministries going on? Remember, it's before the rest of the synoptic gospels are happening. All right, so that's helpful to understand that context. But here we are. So there's some of John's disciples, and they're having a discussion with a Jew over purification because of, this is really kind of fascinating, because they were baptizing, right? And so baptism, water baptism, we know now this is actually water baptism that they're talking about because John is baptizing by water. Jesus actually and his disciples are baptizing by water in this moment. And so the discussion is about what? Purification. Because for Jews at the time, and they were all Jews, right? Purification and rituals of purification were super important. This is how they became holy. This is how they encountered the holy God. This was remembrance that God was holy and he was making them holy. So they had all these ritual purification ceremonies. Now, they knew that those ceremonies, that it actually didn't make them pure. They just reminded them that God made them pure. So it was a ceremonial. So they would do something, usually putting water over the head. That was a traditional cleansing, ritual purification ceremony. And so it was talking about the method. And one aspect we think they were talking about, hey, is, John, is this actually a proper Jewish purification ritual, this baptism? 
or the method in which he would do it, or the frequency, which is actually probably more with it. Is it John, is the frequency we do it? Because there would have been some Jews at that time that thought you need to do this a daily purification ceremonial ritual. And so that probably is some of the discussion, which is really helpful to understand what our water baptism symbolizes. Our water baptism symbolizes who makes us pure. Do we make ourselves pure? No. Who makes us pure? Jesus. Does Jesus need to make us pure over and over again? No. That's why we only have one baptism. That's why we don't need to repeat our water baptism over and over and over again. I mean, you, you can. It's not the end of the world, right? It's just, it's, it communicates something different. Now, there's also a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens once as well, too. But that's a different thing, different time, different sermon. But this is really important. So, and then they came to John. These same disciples, John's disciples, came to him and said, Rabbi, to John, he, Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, this is the guy that you bore witness to. Look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. So John, we remember, he had a huge, I mean, almost like it doesn't imply, like everyone came to John. Everyone came and was being baptized by John. He got huge crowds. It was a phenomenon. This crazy John in the wilderness, and people came to him. And now his disciples, in which there seems to be these competing ministries, and his disciples go to John, listen, this guy's taking away all your followers. This guy's taking away, our, our group is becoming smaller and smaller, and this guy's getting more reputation, more fame. What's going on? It's not okay. But what, what, they, what they actually come to John with, they come to him with envy. Look at, Jesus has what once we had. It's, John, well, you're the guy, John. We've been with you for a long time. He, he, he even, remember Andrew, Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, he was a follower of John first. We read that in John. And then he came to Jesus after Jesus was baptized. And then, he, and then Andrew brought his brothers and then his cousins and all these other people to Jesus. So one ministry is reducing and one is increasing. And the people, some of his disciples that saw it decrease were upset and they were envious. And they come to John. These are words of resentment. They're asking John, what are you going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? He's gaining a large following. He's gaining power. He's gaining prestige. Jesus has something we want, John. And we don't want him to have it. This is unrequited love. This is unrequited infatuation. This is envy. And listen, at my weakest moments, I envy. I envy I envy other ministries. I envy other churches and pastors. Man, I, you, I mean, you can hear everyone, anyone nowadays, right? Now everyone's streaming, and, and I listen to some pastors go, man, I love their tone. At times, I feel like I'm so angry when I preach. I don't feel angry, but I feel like I, I listen to myself, man, that sounds like an angry preacher. And then I hear some people are so pastoral in tone and that some have such theological depth and they're able to express it. Like, man. And then some people's ministries are so big and so influential. And like, why can't I have that? I want it. This church is good. And it's more than that. I don't want them to have it. Maybe because I don't like them. 
Maybe because I don't like their theology. Listen, I, I, want, I love you. I am thankful for you. But in my mind, like, why isn't there more? What's, why didn't you? We get like that, don't we? I get like that. That's my weakest moment. We all do this. We get, we get this, it's about the job or the promotion. We're upset that perhaps someone else got it. How do they deserve that? Or someone else has more blessing than we do in a certain possessions or finances. Like, why did they get that house? Why did they get to drive that car? Why did they get that reputation? And so we, we get to be people, we don't want to celebrate other people's successes. We want to have it and not them. And we want to tear them down in our mind. And we want to tear them down publicly. And we do this with sports teams too, don't we? I mean, New England has had this infatuation with Peyton Manning for such a long time. Because of their love for Tom Brady. And look, at it's okay. it wasn't okay that Tom Brady had success. But that if Peyton Manning had any, it's like that was, let's just talk negative about them. Listen, Peyton Manning is funny. His commercials are funny. It's okay to celebrate that. Right? It's okay that he's had success. It doesn't diminish Tom Brady's success because we're so worried about Tom Brady's glory and now it's Aaron Rodgers that's somehow infringing on Tom Brady's magnificent. Breathe. It's okay. Other people can have success. I get it though because I'm with that way with Andrew, uh, I mean, um, Russell Wilson. Man, anyone, like any of his peers that compete, like I just have to diminish them. It's, it's why I don't like Cam Newton. <laughs> it's because they're kind of peers, like don't diminish Russell's glory, right? And, and it's why I was excited that Andrew Luck retired, right? I mean, anyway, you're going on, right? But we do this with our politicians too because we think it's a game and like somehow we own it. Like, it's absurd. We should celebrate all of them to have success. Isn't that exciting? That's what we want. Which, le- which leads me to this, this unrequited love song of Elton John's Kiss the Bride. I don't know if you know it or not, but you should. This is a classic Elton John song, right? And so in this song, and first of all, you have to know Elton didn't write his songs. This is really, Elton performed, he's a great performer, he didn't write his songs. And it makes total sense that he didn't write the song, if you know a little bit about Elton John, right? <laughs> and he's, Elton says, I want to kiss the bride, Long, I, I wish I could sing it because I lost the melody in my head. Long before she met him, she was mine, mine, mine. I got it. <laughs> Don't say I do. Say bye, bye, bye. And let me kiss the bride. I mean, do you hear that? I mean, Ellen's like, he doesn't just want. He wants to take something away. This is unrequited love. Like, he's at the wedding. He wants the, like, the, the objection. Like, yeah, I object because I love her. I want to kiss her. She was mine. And I want her back, and I don't want you to have it. The bride didn't belong to Elton. What belonged to Elton in that moment, what belonged to the singer, was envy. Sin. A depraved, broken heart. Loving the wrong thing. It's really idolatry. I wish you want to understand that, what that is. It is idolatry. When we lo- envy, we love the wrong thing. And really, love is even the wrong word. We want the wrong thing. We are idol worshipers. We are not loving at all, but we are hating. We're hating ourselves. We're hating others. There is no love. 
I'll get back to this Elton John song. You understand why it came to my mind in a moment. John 3.27, here's the thing. John's disciples are envying. They're asking, John, what are you going to do about it? And here's John's response in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. I mean, isn't that the greatest response to envy? It's like, listen, it's none of his mind anyway. What's given to me is given to me. What's given to Jesus is given to Jesus. What's given to you is given to you. Don't be envying someone else's gift. Don't be envying of what God has given this other person. Only God gives. This is an incredible response. It's a universal truth that John is quoting, that God gives all the good gifts. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says it this way. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Like, why do you, why do you act like it was something that you did instead of something that God gave you? That's what Paul's saying. Understand that all the good things God has given you. And sometimes it's a good thing when we think it's a bad thing. So we misidentify what the thing is anyway. Like, it, all things are good gifts from God. It's not yours to envy. The real issue that John is going after in his disciples, it's John's understanding of his vocation, which is is his calling, or we use it as as a sense of of job, but his calling. And remember that this is what the, the Pharisees came to John in the first place, asking about his calling. Who are you, John? What's your calling? What's your role? And they asked him, are you Elijah in John 1? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Are you, are you the Messiah? And what did John say? John was a person that knew his calling, that knew his role, that knew what God called him to do. John 1.23, said, he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Like, he's the one that prepares the way for the Messiah. And John 3.28, John says, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been set before him. He tells his disciples, you bear witness. You know that I'm not the Christ. You know that he is. That I bear witness to him. My job is to prepare the way. My job is to point people. Another imagery in which which the gospel of John uses, like Jesus is the light. John is the lamp bearer like we are. We hold the light out for people to see it. But Jesus is the light. One ministry, John's ministry makes no sense if there is no light. Paul even goes further, and Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, this this envious relationship that we have in ministries and, and all our relationships, 1 John 1, 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, that the mind of Christ, you be united in Christ. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. People are saying they follow me. 
I follow Apollos, right? These are all people that are Christians, right? But they're saying, I follow this leader. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, which is Peter. I follow Christ. And then Paul says, is Christ divided? Are there different leaders here? Was Paul crucified for you? Paul's speaking in third person here. Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Oh, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that, you may, that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus beyond that I did not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul's like, that really wasn't my ministry to baptize, right? But you weren't baptized. You're not following me. There's one head of the church, Christ. This is really important. You're not following me as a church. You're not following me. You're, you're helping me in my walk, right? You're, you're holding me accountable to the word, and, and I'm holding you accountable to the word, and we have elders that hold each other. All, right, this, we're all doing this together, spurring each other on, Hebrews 10. And, the, and Paul goes further in verse 17. For Christ did not send me, this is vocation, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty with his power. Now, breathe. This is good news for me. I don't need eloquent wisdom or words, right, to preach the gospel. It's good news for you, too. You don't have to have all the right words to say they're all the right things, but it is your job to preach the gospel, to point to Christ. That is your vocation. John the Baptist is saying, if God has given Jesus more followers and a different vocation, it's okay. That's God's plan. This is his way. And that's not my job. My job is not to be the Messiah of the world. My job is not to be the Savior of people. It's a different job. It's his. John is saying, I'm content with me. I'm content with what God has given me and my role and my vocation. And this is Philippians 4.11. I am content in my circumstance. That's a good place to be. Here's my pro tip today. I don't always get pro tips, but here's a pro tip. Don't envy Jesus. Don't envy Jesus. Don't want what he has. Don't want his ministry. I mean, Peter tried. Peter tried. He told Jesus, look it, I'll die with you. And Jesus like, Peter, Peter, not your job. Couldn't if you wanted to. Right? You, you can't go to the cross. You can't die for the sins of the world. Why would you want that? Why would you want that ministry? I mean, the, the bottom line, when you, when, you envy, when you envy Jesus, you're really envying God. I mean, that's what we're saying. When you envy God, he says, I want what you have. I think I can do it. I think I want to be God. I mean, we never say that, right? But that's what it means when we envy Jesus. That's what these disciples are saying. I want to be God. Which that, I mean, that right goes right back to the very beginning, the first sin. I want to be God. You can be like him. The lie of Satan in the garden. God gives to you. You do not give to God. 
I, I just want you to hear that very carefully. God gives to you. You do not give to God. And then you may, great, I don't have to give an offering. I don't have to give my life. That's not my point. Anytime that we recognize that we give anything, we're not giving it. We're recognizing that everything we have is God, including self. And so it's not like I give it back. He doesn't need it. What it is is recognizing and being grateful to the giver. It's, it's not holding on to those things tightly, but holding on to him. That's when we talk about when we give. Don't envy God. It is just idolatry. Worship him. Worship him. Love him. It goes on into, into John 3.29, which is why this, this imagery of the wedding hit me with kiss the bride. This envy and, and wedding. And John gives this, this illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John's imagery is saying, look at like this, this friend of the bridegroom, in our terminology, like be the best man or, or the groom's attendant. All right, so the best man's job is not to steal the bride. It's not like, or if the, if, the, if, the, if the groom goes down to, well, I'm second in line, I'm in place, right? That's not, that's not what happens, right? Right? No, the, 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 the best man, the groom's attendant, what's his job? Is the groom doesn't have to think on his wedding day, right? Has the ring, has all, makes sure everyone else, all the other attendants are in place. He makes sure everything goes off without a hitch, Make sure the groom is standing where he needs to stand, right? That's his job. Prepares the way for the wedding. And that's the imagery in which John said, I'm the the best man. But here's the thing, right? Because it's not his wedding, right? It's not John's wedding. The disciples, John's disciples are not his bride. He doesn't get to kiss the bride, nor should he want to. But here's the, here's the incredible thing, is that, I mean, this imagery of, 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 the, of the groom and the bride, I mean, this is the imagery of this marriage, is, is the imagery that's been carried out throughout the whole Testament. It's profound. Hosea, Ezekiel, I mean, Isaiah, like it's over, over, and then in Revelation, it ends in this. You see, John isn't, I mean, yeah, in this imagery, in this uh, allegory, yeah, he is the best man, but you know what? John, like you and I, is the bride. He's the bride. Jesus is the groom. This, this is a story of, not, of John the Baptist or his disciples' unrequited love, nor is it the story of our unquieted love or love and infatuation of what we want, or of power, over prestige, over people. It's not our love or our idolatry. It's not, that's not the story of our life. I mean, it may seem like that at times. It's not the story of the Bible. It's not the story of the world. The story of the world is God's unrequited love for us. A God that is relentless in pursuing us. Pursuing his bride. A bride that is continually fleeing from him. And it's the story of God that, who's trying to woo his bride. 
and eventually it's a story of, God, of love that is requited. A love that is reciprocated. Because God's love is creative. Because God's love is so overflowing, it, it's creative and it gives, right? We, we just read that in John 3, 16. For God so loved, he gave. It gives and it creates. This is how all creation started. Because God loved, things create. Because God loved us, something in us is created. It's something that is dead is made new. And his bride is given new life. We're born from above. This is the story of the world. God's requited love. I just want, notice for a moment what the, the, the friend of the bridegroom does, though. And know that, know that we are the friend and we are the bride. We are the friend in the story and we are the bride in the story. The friend stands with the groom. He stands with the groom. I'm with him. Right? It's all about the groom, but he, you know, he, but he stands with him. Like, yeah, I'm connected to him. I'm the best man. All right, there's, there's importance there. You get your name and the little, what are the bulletin? If they have bulletins at wedding. Right? You're, you're recognized. And then what is the second thing he does? He hears him. He listens to the groom. He pays attention to the groom, what the groom has to hear. I mean, here's our job. We stand with Jesus. You want to know your vocational role? You stand with Jesus and you listen to him. You, you open up this book and you hear his word to you. And what's the last thing? What is the last thing the groom do? He rejoices greatly at the wedding. He's so excited for the groom. And my joy is complete because my, the groom's joy is complete. I'm excited about that. And then he goes on to John 3.30. John says, he must increase. I must decrease. This is not saying like, hey, uh, my dignity needs to decrease. That's not what he's saying. My importance needs to decrease. No, it doesn't decrease. It's just there's never been a comparison to the importance of Christ in you. That's, that's what, he's, what he's saying. It's like, look at God's will, determined will, needs to increase in my life, and God's rule in his, my life needs to increase, not decrease. My will, my rule in my life, needs to decrease, and so does it need in yours as well. And Jesus, is, which is what's happening in this moment, what is happening in this moment is Christ is entering into the world, and his rule is increasing or being revealed. And his will is happening. God's determined will is happening. John isn't saying my job is done. John's saying is that my job was to point to him and he's the one doing the real job. The king and the kingdom are here. We get this in Isaiah 9-7, right? We hear this at Christmas time. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Right, from this point on, from this point on, on the story, Jesus' government, this is his rule, his sovereignty, I mean, it's always been there, increases in being revealed to the world. It doesn't ebb and flow, it increases. It's always been there, but the, the revelation of his rule is being revealed to the world, and it will continue and continue until this world ends throughout the beginning part of John, what we've learned is that Jesus is superior to all the things. 
Jesus, right, in comparison to his light, his light is better. His baptism is better. Jesus has a better baptism, not because it's water, because eventually John says he's going to baptize with the Spirit. His wine is better. The temple, which was meant to be the presence of God, he is the presence of God. He is the temple. The temple is better because he is there, because he's the temple. That was just a shadow of temple. You begin to see in everything in John, again, the real is being revealed. The shadow is being revealed as well in this world. Increase and decrease. John's role is decreased, but his job is the same. Just like Paul's was to preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus. Show people about Jesus through his life. Tell people about Jesus and tell people about his love and show them his love. I mean, it's not going to be perfectly how you show it, but you try. Don't sing of your unrequited love. Don't live in that envy and that teenage angst and that idolatry in your heart. Live in the determined, beautiful, joy-filled will of God in your life. Live in the requited love of God. That God so loved, he gave you. You. He gave you a love for him. He gave you that. He gave you that love to love him. He gave you his love, which he... That, there is no other definite of love. His love is the only love, and he gave you that love so that you can actually love him. Before that, we couldn't because we didn't have his love. He gave that to you. And then he gave you his love so that you can actually love his creation, his bride, his people, and the world. Otherwise, you actually don't love because you don't have his love. It's not like you can manifest it. It's not like you can will it. He gave you his love, his requited love. He gave you his love to love others so that they might know God's unrequited love for them. Did you get that? This is your job. This is your game. God gave you his love so that you loved him back, so that you love others, so that they may know that God is relentlessly pursuing them. That they may know the story of the world, God's unrequited love. And that may one day, they may know it as requited love. This is the story. This is love. Let us pray. Gracious God, I'm thankful that you do not sing an unrequited love song to us in the way of a teenage voice, but that you have a mature, complete love for us. You have a jealous love for us, not an envious. That your love is creative. That you have a job and you created each and every one of us in unique and different ways to do the same job, which is to proclaim you in different ways. Lord, help us to point to you. Help us to point others to you so that they may know your love for them. Lord, help us to love in the way that you've loved us. Help us to love others in that matter. Lord, we're thankful that we are your bride.
and that you are joy that is completed. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.